So a few weeks ago, uh, we had a guest preacher, Margaret Weiss was her name, and she was preaching about the space in between, this liminal space. And she shared a story about being up on a 30-foot pole at a ropes course with her niece and trusting her harness and gathering her courage and then just like jumping off and sliding down and how good that felt. And it brought to my mind uh, a ropes course experience I had from my own youth group when I was about 15 years old. And it was a whole bunch of us that went to this ropes course. The idea was through personal, um, you know, stretching of yourself and kind of communal engagement that you would be transformed and bonded as a group. Like Margaret, I found myself on top of this 30-foot pole. And man, it feels a lot higher than 30 feet when you're up there, those of you who have, have done this. And the object in this case was to stand on the pole and then jump out to a trapeze that felt like it was a quarter of a mile away. It, it did. It was like, it was like the balcony. It's like the, the railing on the balcony. Like, I'm up here looking out there. And many people had already gone, many youth and adults had already gone. I was at the top of the pole, it was my turn. People are down below, they're like, go on, Justin, you got this, come on, you can do it, right on, you go for it. And I was so ready. So I, I, I stood there, my legs were shaking, my stomach was kind of tight, my heart was definitely pounding, and I really was ready to jump. So I leaned forward just a little bit, like kind of trying out this space. I'm like, all right, this is the space where I leave what I know and I, I'm transformed and I leap and it's going to be awesome. But I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. I was terrified. I was freaked out. I didn't push through my fear. I didn't step off and grab hold of that bar. I didn't turn into a butterfly. And gracefully and with ease reach the trapeze and then land on the platform and slide all the way down. Instead, I essentially said, I'm fine with being a caterpillar right now. <laughs> Thank you very much. Transforming into a butterfly, not my thing right now. And maybe you've been on that pole at a ropes course or in a similar situation and you can relate to that moment where you think you're gonna do the thing and be transformed, but you come back down, you climb back down like I did. You come back down to the pole and you rejoin your community and there's a little bit of a weird awkwardness, but they welcome you back in, but it's just, everybody feels a little funky about what happened. And as much as I love the story about transformation, that story I shared about the butterfly and the, the caterpillar and the goo and all of that, and as much as there are some incredible lessons in there for us, how messy and confusing and goopy transformation can feel, the honest truth of that story is the caterpillar doesn't have a choice. It's in its DNA. It's in the DNA of the caterpillar. It eats and eats and eats and eats until it can't eat anymore and then it makes a cocoon and a chrysalis and it goes all gooey and then the imaginal cells activate and turn that protein soup into a butterfly. Powerful imagery, powerful for our lives, but it's inevitable, it just happens. Unless there's a predator or a bird or something that kills or eats that caterpillar, it's gonna turn into a butterfly. That's just what happens. The same cannot be said for us. Turning into a butterfly, undergoing a deep transformation is not inevitable for us. 
It happens, of course, and grief and heartbreak and love are often catalysts for such transformation, but we can and often do resist. I'm sure you have known this in your own life or in the life of someone close to you. I'm sure you know this. Just help me be pure, in the words of St. Augustine. Help me be pure, Lord, but not today. Help me be sober, spirit, but not, not yet. Help me stop hiding secrets from my partner. Help me deal with my addiction. Help me develop a rich spiritual life and practice. Help me transform my feelings of guilt or shame into curiosity and compassion. Help me, help me, help me. I want to transform, but not yet, not today, not right now. Maybe this isn't you. Although when I think about my own life and my own journey, and I think about the years of working with a spiritual director and a therapist and a coach, all of these things I've done to deepen my spiritual core, the work of our racial justice journey, diving into that, that has changed me as transformative work. I can still be reluctant to lean into the very things that would help truly transform me. I can be resistant to leaning into letting go of the behaviors and the practices and the habits, the way I hold on to power, whatever it is that would actually fundamentally transform me. I feel the butterfly in me sometimes, but transformation isn't guaranteed. We are not butterflies. And unless we dare to move deeply in and through and beyond the known patterns and pathways of our lives, of our culture, of our history, of our racial identity, our habits, unless we are willing to move in and through and beyond those known pathways, I think transformation is unlikely. And I wanna share a painful example of how this is playing out right now in our larger religious association um, I'm sure that some of you are following this, and if, if you're not, uh, that's all right. Just hang with me as I flesh this out. In the last couple of weeks, there's been this flurry of emails and public postings and blog posts uh, in the Unitarian Universalist world, um, particularly playing out online. What happened is a couple of weeks ago, sort of the presenting issue that set all of this off was there was, there was a hiring decision for one of the regions in the country, uh, there's five regions, to hire the lead for that region, and a white man was hired over a woman of color. Normally none of this would have been made public, but the woman of color shared publicly a post saying, here's my experience. I was told I wasn't quite the right fit for this job. This feels like a pattern I'm experiencing in Unitarian Universalism. Uh, this is really troubling to me. You know, I don't know all the details, but that was the, that was the presenting issue. So it was made public, there was a better fit than, than this woman. And in response to that, a number of Unitarian Universalists of color and white allies really began to chime into the conversation, sort of looking at the Unitarian Universalist Association and our faith and its hiring practices and its habits. And they began to share these stories, painful stories about ways they felt like racism was still very much alive in our faith communities. And they began to call into question this 
our commitment, our faith commitment to racial justice, to the dismantling of white supremacy culture within our institutions. So the particular details of this hire are less important than the overall patterns in Unitarian Universalism in, in many of our churches. The patterns where people of color are often tokenized or marginalized or stereotyped in ways that are subtle and not so subtle. The whole thing was made even more complicated when after this was sort of public, the president of the association, Peter Morales, um, responded unintentionally, I believe, but he responded out of that white supremacy culture, I believe, with a response that dismissed and diminished and marginalized the concerns that were being voiced by people of color and others. So in response to that, a whole bunch of other people of color and white allies feeling even more unheard, saying, we love this faith, we claim this faith as our own. Here are some, we're holding a mirror up to you, association. Um, they began to share open letters on social media and public posts, and there was grief and anger and very compassionate but fierce pushback. Just yesterday, the president of our association, Peter Morales, resigned three months before the end of his term, saying that he no longer had the trust needed to lead. It's a troubling moment. I wish that Peter might have said, you know, I'm really sorry. This is hard work. And I think I messed up. I think we have messed up in some big ways, but I want to hear your concerns. I want to understand these challenges in our association. In fact, I want to do the best I can to model leadership of how we move through this difficult, messy moment, because this is the work of dismantling these structures of oppression. I wish he'd have said, I'll stay on and I'll help the next president who will be elected in three months have a, have a ramp, have an on-ramp to begin this work and carry it forward in ever deeper ways. I imagine most of you don't follow the inner workings of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And so some of you, if you're here for the first day, you're like, what is going on? And some of you who are like committed First Universalist folks and are just here, you're like, what is going on? And some of you who follow this and have dearly beloved people in our association at the highest levels of leadership, I know have been following this and your hearts are broken and troubled and challenged. I'm sharing this story because it's unfolding right now in real time and because it is absolutely relevant to our theme of transformation. It's relevant because for nearly the past three decades, the Unitarian Universalist Association, like many faith communities and companies and institutions in our country, has been led by, by men. There's actually three women who are running for the presidency this year, so we will have the first woman as the president of our association this year. But in the past, that's a big deal. That's a good thing. There are three white women. It's, it's three white women, but it's a good thing. This is relevant, all of this, because for the past three decades, the association led by men, white men, and then an African-American man, and then a Latino man, they have all publicly stated, and the, the, the institution has stated its commitment to racial equity work, to being a multicultural faith. We have wanted to transform ourselves in authentic and deep ways. The intentions, oh Lord, the intentions have been there and some progress has been made. And yet, because of our religious history 
in this country, which is grounded in a history of genocide and slavery, which is grounded in a culture of white superiority that still permeates all of our institutions, the transformation we long for has been difficult. Our intentions have not been enough. In many cases, it's as if collectively we have said, help us become a racially just faith community, institutions, help us shed the habits and the practices of white cultural supremacy. Help us, but not yet, but not quite now. And let me be really, really clear this morning. I am not blaming Peter Morales or any individuals here. I'm not trying to pile on guilt and shame on anyone that would send them to the shame shack. I don't know if you heard Ruth's sermon from a couple of Sundays ago. She so beautifully described this place. We can all put ourselves when we feel bad, when we feel guilty or ashamed about something we've said or done or haven't said or done. And so instead of kind of being in relationship and processing that, we take ourselves back to the shame shack and just beat ourselves up some more for what we did what we feel like we did wrong. I'm not trying to send anyone to the shame shack or blame anyone for anything. There are plenty of flaws and failures to go around when it comes to working for racial justice. None of us do this work perfectly. And the reason I'm not gonna blame individuals, though they have a hand in this, is because we are in this cultural system that is shaping all of us, whether we know it or not. We still exist in a cultural system that privileges men over women. Look at who leads our biggest institutions. Look at the fact that a bunch of men just decided what was best and right for women's reproductive rights and health. That doesn't happen when you have equality. That doesn't happen when you have equity. We're still too often in a culture where white skin privilege exists, where white folks are seen as smarter or better or harder working or more honest than people of color or indigenous people. We are still in a culture where there are essentially two okay genders to fit in, man and woman. And if you don't fit in those two genders, like that's your problem. So my point is there are these larger forces at work that operate on us, whether we are aware of them or not, that operated on Peter, that operated in the Unitarian Universalist Association, that operate on us, often without our conscious awareness. So it is hard, hard work to become a racially just, gender-inclusive, non-sexist institution. It is messy and painful and heartbreaking and life-giving all at the same time. But this church, First Universalist, and our larger faith community, we have committed to being a racially just institution. That's the journey we're on, this is the moment we're in, and it is calling for our faithful response. Good intentions alone do not guarantee transformation. We are not butterflies. But what rings true for me in that story in the caterpillar story, is that bit about those imaginal cells, those little disks of potential inside each caterpillar. Our faith believes that inside each of us there is a piece of the divine, there is a spark of the holy, there is the imprint of that love that knows no bounds. That's in each of us. So when I think about this story, 
I really do believe we have those imaginal cells within us, those God cells, if you will, waiting to be activated, waiting to transform the mess and goo and muck of our lives and institutions. So what is it, friends, that activates those cells within us? What is it that calls us into the mess of transformation? What is it that might transform us into butterflies? Again and again, I come back to these words from Naomi Shihab Nye. Remind us again, brave friend, what countries may we sing into? What lines should we all be crossing? What songs travel toward us from far away to deepen our days? Can those questions activate our imaginal selves? Can those questions transform us in some profound way? Remind us again, remind us again, brave friend, what countries may we sing into? Literal countries, sure, but what about the metaphorical countries we could sing into? What if we sang beautiful and comforting songs into the country of I'm scared as a white person of saying or doing something racist so I don't say or do anything at all? What if we hummed melodies of compassion and deep listening to the people of color among us who are joining this congregation that said, we will listen to you. We will hear your truth spoken in this space. What if we hummed soothing melodies into the countries filled with guilt and shame when we went to the shame shack country and we could hear our friends singing these melodies, calling us back into the work, calling us back into love, calling us back to dismantle a system we didn't create but that harms all of us. Remind us again, brave friend, what lines, what lines should we all be crossing? What about the lines that demand perfection? What about the lines that demand either or thinking instead of both and thinking? What about the lines of we've always done it this way instead of, hey, let's try that? What lines should we all be crossing, activating our imaginal cells? And then again, remind us Brave friend, what songs travel toward us from far away to deepen and transform our days? What songs, what stories and experiences from people of color are coming toward us now from within our own tradition, from within our community? What songs from women, from immigrants, from transgender, from our transgender siblings are coming our way? What songs of resilience, of hope, of possibility, of pain, are drifting our way. If we ask the questions of the poet, perhaps we move one step closer to transformation, to becoming butterflies. I started with a story on a, having myself on a 30-foot pole and I wanna conclude by going back to that poll. And I'll tell you, here's what it feels like right now for me 
in this church and this ministry with all of you as I think about that moment and where we are right now. Going back to my 15-year-old self on the top of that 30-foot pole, I'm not sure how much transformation I really would have experienced had I jumped off that pole. Ropes courses can only do so much, okay? Like, I kind of wish I had, but I listened to my body, and I was, the, like, I was terrified, so I came back down the pole. That may or may not have been a transformative experience had I jumped and everyone applauded and I was a part of the team. For me, right now, what holds far more promise of transformation is the hard and complicated and messy and crazy-making and heartbreaking and beautiful work we've started. Our racial justice journey, our desire to be as deeply inclusive as possible, to listen to the songs and the words and the voices of differently abled folks, of trans folks, of women, of immigrants, of people of color, of white folks who are like, what is going on? I think something's happening in me. There's some change coming. I don't know what it is. We're like, that's okay. There's some whiteness there. We'll move through it together. Like, we'll figure this out. That is what is transforming these little imaginal cells in me. I hope it is touching those imaginal cells in you. That feels like it holds far more promise of transformation than any ropes course possibly could. Amen. Denise Conan, I love you. <laughs> I love it when you talk, talk back at me. So friends, we're being called to be brave. We are being called to be humble. We are called to be curious and persistent and open-hearted. The path we've started down feels transformational and dear ones, it takes all of us, imaginal cells activated to build a world where we are in right relationship with our siblings and right relationship with this planet. May it be so, and amen.